0: You're listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network. Hi folks, and welcome to episode 42 of the Let's Talk Photography podcast. I'm your host, Bart Bouchotts. Just me again this month, uh, and I'm sort of continuing on uh, the, the, a theme we started last month, which is basically discussion of how how cameras actually work. And what I want to get to at the end of this, what I think is going to be a three-part series. So, we started last time by looking in a very uh, very generic, very general sense, how cameras work. There was a lot of history thrown in, and we sort of arrived at the idea that a camera is a device which focuses light onto a focal plane at which there is some sort of light-sensitive material which records the image in some way. Uh, so now I want to move us into the digital era. And where I want to get to at the end of this series is the point where you can use a digital camera... In complete full and total manual mode where you are in charge of everything. Uh, What I want to do today is start with the exact opposite of that end point. I want to start with what it is the camera is doing when you put it in full and complete auto mode. What decisions is it making and what Data. What sensors is it relying on to make those decisions? How, you know, how, what is it deciding, and how? What inputs is it using to make those decisions? And believe it or not, understanding what it is that the the, the little computer and the camera does for you is the first step in taking control away from that camera. Where I think is, is the ideal place to end up is in a place where you understand your camera well enough that if it makes sense. And if there is something to be gained from it, you can assert complete control over your camera. You can turn off all of the automation, take full control yourself, make all of the decisions yourself and get good outputs when you do that. Uh, In most of the time, in real world situations, you actually don't, it doesn't make sense to take full control because... Basically, computers are good at some menial tasks, so why not let them have your back sometimes? So, like, my camera spends most of its life in a mode between full auto and full manual. In other words, I am choosing to assert myself over some aspects of the camera's configuration, and I am choosing to hand responsibility for some other aspects to the computer inside my camera. And I'm making an informed decision about what it is I'm going to assert control over and what it is I'm going to tell the camera to look after for me. And so step one to being able to make that kind of decision is to understand the full panoply of possible decisions the camera could be making for you and how it's doing that. And so that's what I want to focus on in this show, in this installment for one of a better term. And then that's going to set us up then for the final conversation next time, which is getting from full auto to full manual. So basically today I want to describe what's going on inside a modern digital camera when you have it set to be completely automatic. So the first big setting or big sort of related group of settings that the little computer inside your camera has to figure out when you're in full auto mode is the so-called exposure triangle. So, in a digital camera, when we're talking about exposure, we're saying basically, remember, we're capturing the image by having light hit a digital sensor, and then that light is turned into electrons. If you leave the light come in, if you let too much light hit the sensor, every bucket, every pixel in other words, is full, and you get a pure white image. If you don't let enough light in, every bucket is effectively empty, and you get a pure black image. So a properly exposed image lets in the right amount of light that you have nothing over or or as little as possible overexposed and as little as possible underexposed. You basically have a balanced exposure where all the buckets have a reasonable amount of light in them, for want of a better term. All the pixels have something useful to add to the image. And we, we call that a properly exposed image, and that's the first and most important, balancing act the little computer inside your camera has to do. And in order to arrive at a reasonable exposure, the little computer inside your camera has three different variables that it's free to wiggle about within a given range. And that range it's able to wiggle those three settings about in is entirely determined by the hardware of your camera. So the first thing it can control is how long do I allow light to land on the digital sensor? In other words, what shutter speed do I use? And you, the camera will have a shortest shutter speed, which is determined by the, the quickest possible time it can t- take to open and close the, uh, the aperture, uh, whether that be a reflex lens that flaps up or whether that be a semi-transparent mirror that becomes transparent, whatever it is, you know, whatever shutter mechanism the digital camera has, there will be a fastest you can open and close it, and that will determine the shortest possible exposure time. So I think on, on my Nikon DSLRs, I think that's one four thousandth of a second is the fastest it can go. And then on the other end, the software will sort of determine the longest possible exposure. So I think without going into bulb mode, and bulb mode basically means I will open the shutter and then I will close the shutter again later. So bulb mode is not something any of the automated modes will ever allow you to access. Uh, I think on my Nikons, it's 30 seconds is the longest exposure that you can do automatically. So that means that... It has quite a bit of leeway, the camera's little brain, when it comes to deciding on exposure. Somewhere between 30 seconds and 1 4,000th of a second it has to choose which speed to go at. And, you know, the speeds come in little chunks. It's not that, you know, you can't have like one 3,999ths. Uh, they are sort of set in, in intervals which approximate to physical f-stops from years and years ago and then the physical camera days. So that's the first dial it can mess with to get the exposure triangle right, and as you've probably guessed by the name triangle, there's three dials. So the next dial it has a control over is the size of the hole the light comes through, the aperture through which the light gets in, which is basically read to us, so we will read it on the back of the camera screen as an F number. So F slash something. And... The range of possible values will be determined by the lens. So if you have a camera with a fixed lens, well then it has a fixed range of apertures it can go to, but if you have a camera with interchangeable lenses, depending on what lens you currently have on the camera, that will determine the range of f-stops available to the uh, little computer in the camera when it's making its decisions. And then the final thing the little computer in the camera gets to have some say over will be the gain to apply basically when it's measuring the amount of uh, electrons in every pixel or every bucket as I'm describing them. And we would describe that normally in terms of the sensitivity of the sensor, which we talk about in terms of something called an ISO. And, the range of ISOs that the camera can support is determined by the sensor. So a really expensive sensor will be able to have its sensitivity dialed up much higher than a cheaper sensor. And so, so they're the three, decisions, three levers that the little computer inside the camera has to work with in order to choose a valid exposure within you know, within the exposure triangle. Basically, it wants a valid exposure out and it will set these three settings in order to achieve it. And for any real-world scenario, the chances are it has actually quite a few to choose from. And how it makes that decision... So there might be, you know, 500 possible combinations of the three switches that result in a decent exposure. Probably not quite that many, but there will be certainly quite a few possible permutations. And... It will. The camera, when it's in full auto mode, will basically use rules that have been programmed into it by the makers of the camera to prioritize the different options. So maybe an example rule might be: if at all possible, keep the ISO at between 400 and 800 because that way you'll have less noise. If at all possible, don't let the shutter speed go, you know, close to either end of its extreme. So don't have. Don't have it be so long that you can't handhold the camera anymore and don't have it be so short that, that there's almost no light gets in. And then maybe the rule might also say, and try keep the aperture somewhere sane and sensible. And then depending on the real world conditions the little computer inside the camera may be forced to compromise. And again, the algorithm inside of the programming by the camera's manufacturer will determine how it chooses to compromise if it has to compromise. So if you're in a situation where there's absolutely plenty of light, the, the camera will have many, many choices and it will just do whatever the camera maker said is most optimal. And as you bring it into Twilight or into other sort of stressful situations, it's going to make compromises. And the compromises it chooses to make are entirely determined by the programming of... The little computer inside the camera, so that's what it's trying to achieve, but there's something missing here uh, how how is the little computer inside the camera supposed to know what it's aiming at what is to be considered a correct exposure I mean does it just take a picture see if it's all pure white and then change its mind and then take another picture and see if it's all pure white no that's not how it works it decides up front before it opens the shutter what settings it's going to use. In other words, before that shutter opens, the camera has set the ISO, it has set the aperture, and it has decided how long it will expose for. And then once the shutter opens, it does this thing and then it closes again. So how does it know to do that before it opens the shutter? Well, the answer is it has a sensor which allows it to have some information to base its decision on. That sensor is the so-called light meter. Uh, All digital cameras have a light meter inside them. That's literally not having a light meter like having a car without a windscreen. That is the single most important piece of input into the little computer brain inside the camera is how much light is there now. So that's what the light meter does. And it will basically just give a measurement of how much light there is coming into the camera. And then based on that measurement, it will decide what to do. Now, the the fancier your camera, um, something that you... The the light meter will basically... It won't be an all-or-nothing thing on on more modern cameras. The actual sensor for the light meter will will be able to count the light in all of the image and average it or count the light over parts of the image or count the light over a specific spot in the image. So the, the, the light meters are more it's not just how much light is there are hitting the whole the, the whole sensor it's how much light is there in different parts of the image and when we start to take control away from the little computer we can start to make you know to control the configuration of that light meter but when the camera's in full auto mode it's almost certainly simply naively just looking at the average light over the entire scene and then making its decision based on that uh so that that's the first and the biggest chunk which is basically how do we decide the three legs of the exposure triangle and the answer is we have a light meter and that allows the little computer inside the camera to do all the maths needed to come up with a viable set of settings for all three of those things. Somewhat related I guess to the exposure triangle there's also um, when the little computer inside the camera decides that it just It just can't make the exposure triangle work by playing with the the, the three main toggles, switches, whatever you want to call them. Uh, So your exposure, your aperture, and your your ISO. It can also trigger on many cameras the flash. So that also is, is, is part of the same. The light meter basically reads the available light, and if the available light is just too low then the little computer decides okie dokie time to make that flash fire if there's one available or you know pop it up or whatever whatever it does in the camera it's going to be somewhat camera dependent but basically the firing of the flash is also tightly tied into the the same thing the exposure triangle and the 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 sensor that tells the camera that it probably should fire the flash is, is that same light meter so that they're sort of related things the next big decision point then, or the next big thing that the automation does is focusing. And that, that's it's a very important role and also a very difficult thing to do. Um, so the exact mechanism used, so obviously the, the aim of the game is very straightforward. Trying to get an in-focus image is what the little computer is trying to achieve. Uh, but how it goes about achieving that is quite camera dependent actually. And uh, also somewhat dependent on the age of the camera what approach it's going to take so early cameras that had autofocus features tended to be point and shoots and they relied on what's called active autofocus where you have some sort of beam emitted by the camera out into the world it will reflect off stuff in the world come back to the camera and sort of like sonar or radar works it will try to figure out how far away things are in the scene and then set its focus based on those known distances and hey presto in theory it should work fine and that's tolerable for a point and shoot where you're hoping that the biggest thing that's going to echo back the beam is also the thing you want to take a photograph of it's it sort of works okay but uh, but you'll find that DSLRs, uh, higher up cameras don't uh, don't use that sort of an approach. And also, in fact, a phone camera would tend not to use that kind of approach because you got to have something for emitting your ultrasonic pulse or whatever, and then the sensor for receiving it back. It, it's just it's not really the ideal way to go. So most um, most modern digital cameras will use passive autofocus, uh, which means that they have sensors somewhere in you know between the lens somewhere behind the lens somewhere and they'll analyze the data that's coming in to try figure out when stuff is in focus and when it isn't and there's sort of two main approaches um one of them is called phase detection where there's there's sensors inside the camera for detecting the phase of the light and then the other approach is contrast detection and the, the logic goes that if a particular part of the scene, if you're moving the focus in and out, the point where everything has the most contrast is the point where it's sharpest, which is the point where you're in focus. So that's sort of where contrast-based out of focus goes. And of course, on our modern cameras, it tends to be the case that there are... It's not a sensor. It's multiple sensors. And then what the camera does when it's in full, complete and total auto mode is very much down to the camera manufacturer. What they have decided makes the most sense. So maybe... If you have nine sensors, they'll try to get the most possible sensors to be in focus. So basically focusing on the biggest thing in the frame. Or maybe it'll default to focusing on the nearest thing to the camera. So you'll fire off, you'll use all nine autofocus sensors to figure out what's going on and pick the one with the closest focus to you. Uh, Once you start taking manual control, you actually get to decide on the autofocus mode. But when the camera's in full and complete automatic focus mode, it's going to make use of its... N autofocus sensors to decide based on the programming put into it by the manufacturer what it thinks is the best possible focus and different manufacturers will have different amounts of sensors and different rules for what to do in those sensors when in full and complete automatic mode well basically you're going to have some sort of sensor which is either detecting phase or contrast or perhaps in a very good camera you have hybrid autofocus where it does phase and contrast detection and uses those two data points to be really absolutely sure where the best focus is and to sort of to you like use the phrase to zoom in and correct focus as quickly as possible so that that's that's the next big chunk of what's going on with that little computer inside your camera when you're in full auto mode now that takes us to the final big setting that the little computer and the camera is doing automatically and this is a, by far the most potentially confusing, the one that's the most likely to cause issues. And so it's the one I sort of want to spend the most time talking about. Uh, I'm talking, of course, about white balance. Uh, This one is slightly different in the sense that this one tends to happen after the shot has been fired. So there's no... Like the light meter is there to measure stuff before the shot is fired. The autofocus sensors are there to measure stuff before the shot is fired. The white balance is determined after the shot is fired. So basically, we have a correctly exposed image. So we have a number of electrons per pixel. Some of those pixels are red pixels. Some of those pixels are green pixels. Some of those pixels are blue pixels. And some of those pixels are monochrome pixels. And so all of this information has been gathered. And then the camera has to decide how to interpret this information and how to convert this raw this raw data into actual information. So data has data is contextless, information is sort of processed data. And it has to decide how to interpret this raw data to produce an accurate image that looks correct. And that is not simple. So to understand the the problem being solved by white balance, we actually need to start by talking about how we see. So if I am looking at a cow, or a person, or a car, or whatever it is I'm looking at. If I am looking at a thing, what's happening is light from some light source has hit off the thing I'm looking at, it has interacted with that thing, and then some of the light comes back and hits my eye. So the actual wavelength, the actual colour of the light that hits my eye is determined by two things. The colour of the original light before it hit off the thing and the colour of the thing it hit off. Because really, the colour is just how the thing interacts with light. So if something looks red, what that means is that if perfectly white light comes into it, then the green and the blue are absorbed and the red is reflected. So basically the color we see is the result of not all of the light being reflected. And of which light does and doesn't get reflected, basically all wavelengths are not equal. So something is you know, the color of something is sort of determined by which wavelengths it is it absorbs versus which wavelengths it is it reflects. And when we take a photograph, we're not actually trying to capture the colour of the light arriving at our eye. we're trying to capture the colour of the thing the light is bouncing off. So we actually have... We want something we don't have. We, we want the colour of the thing, but what we have, what we have recorded, is the colour of the light. And that is a product of two things. The original colour... The original amount of red, green and blue and the incoming light and the colour of the thing it hit will produce outgoing ratio of red green and blue which is what the camera records now our brain is constantly looking for cues in our surroundings so that it recalibrates our vision so that we always see white as white and red as red and blue as blue but the actual frequency of light coming off a white piece of paper is massively different depending on when they're looking at that white piece of paper you know first thing in the morning while the sun is only just rising and everything is actually quite red. So the incoming light from the sun is very red. It's bouncing off the white paper. And so what's arriving at our eye is actually very red light. But our brain is going, no, 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 that's paper. That's a neutral thing. And our brain recalibrates our vision and we see it as white. But the actual frequencies are red, but we still see it as white. So if we want to take a photograph, we need... The processing the image processing inside the camera to do the same magic trick that our brain does to convert from frequency of light to none no, of the actual color of the thing i bounced off now to do that your camera needs to know i guess two things so basically there are three things original color of light color of object and then the frequency of the light that arrives at the camera if you know any two you can work out the third basically simple rules so the camera by how it works always knows the color of the light that arrives at it so that bit that's always a given so if you then want if you then want to know what color the thing is you need to know the color of the light that came in and so that's what you're when you are setting a white balance you're basically telling the camera what color the original light was and then it can do the mathematics to turn the frequencies it's received into the color of the thing it bounced off and the auto mode auto white balance is in effect doing trying to do the same trick our brain does trying to look at the world and trying to figure out well grass is usually green therefore that's probably green. So then I can readjust everything in my head, if you'll excuse the phrase. It's all subconsciously happening, of course, to make all that correct. And then, hey, presto, I see the world correctly. And so one of the ways that full auto mode works is it simply ha- it's simply trained. There are sample pictures of what grass looks like and what, you know what typical portraits look like and what typical landscapes look like and what typical snow looks like and what typical cities look like. All of these typical scenes. And then the camera is basically told, you know, so typically if you see something like this, this should be greenish and this should be bluish. And it just uses all this information to try guess what the incoming light color was and therefore what white balance to use, basically. And it, it is, to a very large extent, a black art. And every camera manufacturer does their own stuff on this. And arguably, it's actually getting quite good because the simple fact there's a camera phones, there is no manual, and they actually do a pretty darn decent job of sort of guessing at what color the incident light is. Now, it's actually very much related. So, if you're shooting in JPEG, then the added complication is, so, the, the, the raw sensor is capturing more information than fits in a JPEG. And It's capturing the actual raw wavelengths of everything. How much was in every bucket, how much red, how much green, how much blue. It's keeping it all if you have a raw. Whereas the JPEG is just the final produced image from the image processing. So that final JPEG is the result of applying a mathematical equation which has as its inputs the data from the sensor and the color of the incoming light. And you combine the data from the sensor with the color of the inputting light and out pops a JPEG image. And if you only save the JPEG image, you can't change your mind later. So in other words, if the original guess at what the white balance was was wrong, then all the other information needed to re-guess is thrown away because only the JPEG is saved. So, if you're shooting in RAW, you can always change your mind. So, it doesn't really matter if the auto mode makes it terrible the first guess and everyone looks like Oompa Loompas or everything's got a blue shift or a yellow shift or a green shift or a red shift or whatever color it is that it shouldn't be. It doesn't matter if you have your camera in full auto mode. It makes a complete mess of the white balance. If you kept the RAW image, you can go back in software and either manually slide things around to figure out what the white balance is, basically telling lightroom or whatever app you're using what color the original light was and it's redoing the calculation or basically help do what i write what our brain does automatically and point to something in the photograph and tell the software this is neutral and it can then you okay so if you say so this white thing is neutral therefore if it looks red that means the incoming light was red Or this wall is a neutral gray. If it looks blue, then the incoming light was blue. Therefore, we can now redo our mathematics based on all the original information and out will pop a color-appropriate image. Uh, But again, that only works if you haven't thrown away all the data, which is why when you're shooting in JPEG, it's actually very important that this guess be correct. Now, this is where a gray card comes in. So, I, I know I've mentioned them on this show before, but a gray card is a piece of probably plastic these days which is of a completely neutral color in other words it has no red no green or no blue or well no it doesn't have none it has exactly even it reflects an exactly equal amount of each of the colors so that means that if you point to something in an image and say this is a gray card you can use that to determine the color of the original light which then allows you to get your white balance right uh, another thing you can do on many cameras, which we will talk about in more detail next time, is you can tell the camera um this basically point the camera at something and say, "I am now pointing you at something that is neutral in color fire the the the, the shutter to say, "Go snap, collect you know do it now, and then the camera will store okay, so that was neutral. I can now calculate the color of the incoming light." Therefore, when I'm now doing your JPEGs, I will use this measured value for the color of the incoming light. And there we go. So I'm hoping I have managed to explain the magic of white balance to you. The reason it tends to be measured rather annoyingly in degrees Celsius or degrees Kelvin is down to physics, unfortunately, um... Part of me wonders whether or not I should say this because it might confuse things. But what the hey, I'm a scientist, so I will explain science. If you have something called a black body, it's basically a theoretically perfect piece of matter, which probably doesn't exist in the real world. But real matter behaves very similar to, but not identical to, a black body. So a black body is just idealized matter. And in the real world, our matter has like biases, so it'll be its color will be slightly off a black body. Anyway, it doesn't that's neither here nor there. If you take a thing and you heat it up, the colour it glows is dependent on the heat you heat it up to. So something that is red hot is heated to a certain temperature. If you apply more heat, it becomes you know, a different shade of red, and eventually becomes a shade of blue, and if you keep heating it, it becomes other shades of blue. Basically, you go through the spectrum of the colours by applying ever more heat. So if you heat a thing... To a certain temperature it glows a certain color therefore you can use that color to describe that temperature or you can use a temperature to describe that color so if we say that something has a color or a white balance of 5,000 degrees we mean the light that is the the source light that you should assume when doing the calculation for what color the thing was it bounced off before it arrived at the camera the source light is the colour of something glowing at 5,000 degrees Celsius. It's not the most intuitive possible measure we could have given for the colour of the light, but nonetheless, for various reasons, it has been decided that light sources are measured in degrees Celsius, which is equivalent to how hot do I have to make something so that it glows this colour. And so when you're using aperture or light room or any of these things, that is how you're going to see white balance you're gonna see it measured in degrees and that's just what color was the incident light really and again What you're trying to achieve is you're photographing the colour of the thing being photographed. So to figure out the colour of the thing being photographed, it's the result of what colour was the original light that bounced off the thing and what colour was that light when it arrived at the camera. The only thing the camera can measure is what arrives at the camera. So the camera has to be told or has to guess what colour the incoming light was so it can figure out the colour of the thing being photographed and produce the correct photo. And the white balance setting is you telling the camera or your image editing app after the fact no no the color that came in was this color you know what came out therefore now create me a proper image of the thing so i'm hoping i haven't confused people by talking about something so esoteric but really white balance is an important one okay so that's actually going to do it for this show Uh, a slightly short one compared to usual but nonetheless it seems like a natural place to, to have a break i think there's too much to talk about next time to sort of squeeze it into one single show. So where we are in our big picture story I'm trying to tell is we talk, you know, we we understand in the abstract what a camera is. It's just basically anything which has some sort of sensor onto which light is focused and it then captures that light and stores it permanently in some way. Uh, then today we've looked at basically when I set my camera to full automatic mode, what decisions is my camera taking and what inputs, what sensors are giving it data to help it make those decisions. And so we've learned about the exposure triangle, which is fed by the light meter, including the flash. We've talked about focus, which is fed by the autofocus sensors. And we've talked about white balance, which is basically fed by looking at the raw image before converting it to a JPEG. And that's the most esoteric and difficult one of all, because basically that's a difficult computer science problem, and that's sort of AI almost, so that's a very difficult thing to do, but nonetheless, the camera manufacturers are making a half decent stab at it. So now that we know what is happening when we say, "Dear camera, you may do everything," what I want to talk about in the next in the next episode is my suggested strategy. For systematically learning to take more control uh, to the point where eventually you have the skills to take full, complete, and total control and have the little computer and the camera making no decisions for you, having it entirely do your bidding and having not relying on programming by Nikon or Canon or whatever to make decisions, but you making the decisions. And then one of the most important decisions you'll be making as a photographer from that point on in your life is you'll be deciding what control that you want to hand over to the camera. Not because, oh no, I can't deal with it, but because you know that that aspect of control is, there's nothing difficult going on there, so you're entirely comfortable letting the camera do that for you because, well, you know, it's a computer, it's good at menial tasks, so why not let it do the menial task and free your brain to be creative? And like I say, the vast, vast majority of the time, my camera is... Somewhere on a spectrum between, basically, my camera, with the exception of using an iPhone, when I use my iPhone, that's the only time I'm taking pictures in complete, total, and full auto, is when I'm using my iPhone. Because basically, if you go to the camera app on iOS, that's kind of the only choice you get. You get a small, small, you can argue there's this, I tap on something to focus on it. So it's not actually full autofocus. I've taken a teeny tiny amount of automation away because in full autofocus mode, the camera is deciding what to focus on. Whereas when I tap to focus, I am asserting a small amount of control. So arguably, that's on the spectrum between full auto and full manual. It's very close to full auto, but it's not full auto. And also on the iPhone, you can drag a little bit to brighten or darken. So you're also have, you're also nudging the light meter. So you're effectively telling the exposure triangle to move a little bit. So arguably, that's not full auto either. But anyway, I think the time in my life I get the closest to being on complete full and total auto is when I'm using my iPhone. And when I'm using my DSLR, I never, I'm never on full auto. But I'm also very rarely on full manual. So that that immediately tells you that what I'm doing most of the time is making a conscious decision to job share with the computer inside my camera. And basically saying, dear camera, you are now responsible for this menial task while I am going to control this. And then in a different situation, I'll take control of something else and let the camera control something else. And from time to time, when usually when there's a difficult scenario, you're trying to get a difficult photograph, that's the point where you say, nope, can't rely on the automation here. This is too." Out of the mainstream, this scene is just not something the automation can deal with. I must assert control, and at that point, you click the dial to full manual and you take over. Although, even at that, I was never a manual actually. No, that's not true. I do manually focus as well. No, never mind. Yeah, no, there are times when I do actually take complete, I'd actually turn off all of the automation. So, there are times when I'm completely on the full auto, a full manual side of the spectrum, but most of the time. I'm somewhere in sort of the, we'll say, closer to being in full manual than being in full and automatic, but nonetheless allowing the camera to take some of the workload off me and do some of it for me. So anyway, that's where that's where we're going next in the series is, is sort of learning to job share with the camera. So now that we understand what a camera is and what the automation is, it's doing for you, how can we job share in a way that allows you to take the most creative, artistic, and fun pictures? as easily as possible Uh, as is always the case I just want to give a few little plugs out of things so there's not really show notes for for the sort of me talking to you shows Uh, so there is still a page at let's-talk.ie where you can listen to this show you can subscribe to this show uh, and you can click on three large blue buttons labeled support the show you can also actually leave a comment which is also nice you can give feedback on individual episodes Uh, So those three buttons perform three... Well, there's three different ways of helping financially. Um, The simplest one to understand is the PayPal button. You press the button, you type in an amount of money, you hit go. That money comes to me minus a fee from PayPal. And the fee from PayPal is a flat fee plus a percentage. So if you're donating a dollar, that is actually very inefficient because what you're actually doing when you donate a dollar through PayPal is you're giving PayPal as much as 57 cent and the person you're giving the dollar to as little as 43 cent. Depends on whether this currency conversion involves. It depends on whether both, whether your account is a verified account. My account is verified, but if yours is not verified, then there's a higher fee than if yours is verified. It's all a bit weird and a bit arbitrary, but basically, if the stars are not aligned at all well, over half of the a, a dollar PayPal donation actually goes to paypal not to the person you're donating to which is very inefficient on the other hand if you want to give five dollars the fee is only it usually works i think it's 75 cent so that means that way 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 more than half of that comes to the person you're actually giving it to so that's actually not inefficient at all really uh, let alone if you're if you're giving ten dollars twenty dollars you know so the efficiency of paypal donations goes up steeply as you go up but basically giving a small dollar amount through paypal is supremely inefficient unless you're a paypal shareholder and just trying to up paypal's quotas so i guess the reason i'm saying that is that is the reason that patreon came into this world because podcasters want to be able to take small dollar amounts because that is fair a podcast is you know as much as I enjoy doing these podcasts, I don't think it's worth $10. It's, it's just, it's a it's an episode, it's not worth $10. But I would argue that it's worth a dollar. Maybe a euro, maybe 50 cents, maybe $2. But it is, definitely has a value, I think, even though I do them for free and I give them away for free. And so people would like to be able to support podcasters in general, at that sort of 50 cent per episode, a dollar per episode, maybe $2 per episode, or I guess arguably for a monthly show, may, maybe, in an outside case, $5 per episode. That's very unusual. But that's what people want to be able to do, and PayPal could not provide that, and that's, that's why Patreon came into being. And so Patreon works by allowing people to pledge small dollar amounts, which they then collect at the end of the month in bulk. So you're basically saying to Patreon, I want to give 50 cents of that podcast and 50 cents of that podcast and 50 cents of that podcast. And then there will be many, many, many episodes will come out. And at the end of the month, you're basically making many small dollar donations, but you're making it as one single payment. So the credit card fees happen once between you and Patreon. Patreon then PayPal the money to the podcast creators, but they do that once a month as a single big dollar amount. And so PayPal's small flat fee plus percentage commission works out really advantageous that way so yes there is a small amount of fees that come off so patreon charge a fee of what you donate to cover the credit card processing that they have to pay to get the money off you and to cover their staff and their servers and so forth but it is actually small and then they use paypal to send the money to the podcaster so paypal again take a cut but again because it's not many small dollar amounts, but one monthly big dollar amount, that fee is also small. So what happens is lots of donations arrive, but only two fees come out instead of a fee coming out per donation. So it's actually a really efficient way for people to give small dollar amounts to podcasts. And so that's why I simply adore Patreon. The other thing, of course, is a Patreon pledge is something you can count on. So I have server bills to pay, I have domain registration bills to pay. I'm saving up in the hope of buying a new mic soon because this mic is getting on a bit in years. I have software that needs to be bought from time to time. Um at at the moment actually at the moment I'm actually using an app that was donated to me by a listener, which is really nice. So, like, thank you again for that. It's, it's, I think it was 2 years ago now, but it doesn't matter. I still enjoy it very much and I think every day I think, oh that lovely listener who donated me this app I'm using to record this very podcast. Anyway, I'm rambling a bit, probably because it's a short show, but you get what I'm saying. Uh, so, that's my long way of saying, you guys who support the show on Patreon, you are amazing and you make this show possible, and I thank you for it very much, and if people are wondering what the whole Patreon thing was about, I'm hoping I've explained it relatively well. Uh, I do two podcasts a month, so if you want to give me $5 a month, pledge two fifty per show, because there will be two shows a month, one photography, one Apple. And then finally, there's a Zazzle store, which I'll be honest, it's not really getting much use. I buy myself mugs and things with my own logo on it for me to use at work. So I advertise my own show. I buy myself the odd T-shirt because, well, I need to wear clothes and I may as well have my own logos on it. But I think I'm pretty much the only person who buys from that Zazzle store. So actually, if people have any suggestions for better ways to do fun merchandising, I'm entirely open, actually, to exploring other ways of doing it because the Zazzle store, despite the fact that I pimp it every single episode, it basically doesn't achieve anything. So it's probably going to go away. And so I'm open to any suggestions if there's any other services out there that do cool merchandising stuff or any other way people might think of supporting the show. Finally, it's not about, it's you know, money is important because bills need to be paid. It's, so it's obviously it's not true to say it's not about money. But it's also equally should say it's not all about money, because in fact it really, really isn't. So I know that there I like I spent many years listening to podcasts and not contributing to them, and now I'm in a position where I can contribute to podcasts, so I do. But I know there are lots of you listening who are not in a position to contribute, and that's that's no bad reflection on you in any way, shape, or form. It's just that, you know, we all go through stages in life and these things that that's fine, right? Absolutely nothing wrong with it is what I'm trying to say. Um So, But that doesn't mean you can't help the show, because you can do really simple things like leave a review on iTunes, or Stitcher, or not Stitcher, I don't think we're on Stitcher. Basically, whatever client it is you use to listen to podcasts, leave a review there. That is very helpful, because that helps other people find the show. Tweet about the show, tell your friends about the show, you know, actual real world conversations with people about the show. That all helps an awful, awful lot. And so... It really is that simple. If you want to help the show, just tell people about it, spread the word, and you're doing, you know, you're supporting the show massively simply by doing that, and I appreciate everyone who does that. Okay, that's definitely enough rambling from me. I've been your host, Bart Bouchard, so you can find me at bartb.ie. You'll find the show at let's-talk.ie. And until next time, happy snapping. You're listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network. Hey, David, this week on TechFan, let's talk about Apple. Uh, don't like it. Yeah, okay. Uh, Windows? We can talk about Windows. Boring. Um... Yeah, you know, there's there's a lot of cool things in 3D printing going on. We could we could talk really? about cool. Nah. I don't think so. Uh, uh, what about like uh, Raspberry Pi? We've we've discussed that in the past. It's Tech Fan. No, uh, you're you're just being difficult now. What do you want to talk about this week on Tech Fan? How about we talk about Apple and then a little bit about Microsoft and then the Raspberry Pi. You suck.